episode of the William Branham Historical Research Podcast. I'm your host, John Collins, the author and founder of William Branham Historical Research at william-branham.org. And with me, I have my co-host, researcher, minister, and friend, Charles Paisley, the founder of christiangospelchurch.org. Together, we're examining the history and the intersections in history between William Branham and other key figures that either influenced or were influenced by the post-World War II healing revivals. Charles, last episode was so much work to put all of that together that honestly it kind of felt like taking a bit of a break for this episode, but we're introducing one of the more interesting figures into our series now, and this episode will... Quite frankly, it's going to be far more interesting than even the last one for a lot of people just because of the name that we're about to drop. But um, we have, uh, if you combine all of the research over time for this one figure, it by far exceeds what we put into last week. So the sum of all of the research is, I guess, heavier if you would put it into a balance scale. But um, I'm so excited to get into this one. I've actually been just waiting and waiting to get to this point so that we can introduce this guy. Yeah, I, I'm looking forward to it too, John. We're probably just going to get to the very initial part of him coming in the door uh, in this episode, but we're going to explain everything that's going on as uh, as the Reverend Jim Jones enters the picture. <laughs> right. <laughs> So uh, in this episode, uh, we're especially going to talk about um, the divisions and the splits that kind of started happening uh, around William Branham um, beginning uh, in the early 1950s up to 1954 that was affecting his inner circle. And I think pretty well all of our listeners are already aware that, that William Branham and his message following ended up completely isolated from the rest of Christianity. Uh, but... Uh, it was really a gradual process over the course of a few years up to a decade that really brought all of that about. And today we're, we're especially going to be able to look at some of those early divisions and how uh, Jim Jones ended up intersecting with the message through some of those. And to do that, I, I think we got to walk through some of the ways that the Latter Rain movement itself was splitting up. Jim, Jim Jones was a Latter Rain preacher at that time. Um, and how it was splitting, dividing during the early 1950s, and how really all of Pentecostalism was going through a schism over the Latter Rain movement in those years, uh, because the splits and divisions in the Latter Rain movement and the Pentecostal denominations' reaction to the Latter Rain movement really has a direct impact on what's happening here with William Branham, with his ministry, with the people around him. Um, and as that goes on, you know, William Branham and Gordon Lindsay and Ern Baxter and quite a few other preachers all end on opposite sides of the splits that are happening. And that trend keeps happening up until William Branham finally ends up being left with just the small following that will form the nucleus of people fanatically devoted to him that really begins the first phase of the message cult. Yeah. I think it's very important to point out for the listeners who were in the cult of personality, um, you know, the rest of the world from the outside looking in just simply views William Branham and his message sect and its various isolated splinter groups as this extremist form of Christianity that was at one time part of the bigger, broader picture and then just kind of 
as every destructive cult does, just kind of isolates itself and becomes more separatist and extremist and, um, as other people put it, just, you know, simply going off the rails. But to the people who were in it, it's entirely different because, uh, like me, for instance, I was born after all of that happened. And I knew that we were isolated, and I thought this was a holy thing. I thought, you know, this is the way it's supposed to be. God wants us to sever ourselves from other Christians. And I can remember, I was, I read my Bible a lot, um, you know, both before leaving the cult and after leaving the cult. And I remember in the cult reading that passage about, you know, those that would come and sever the body of Christ and all of this. And the cognitive dissonance that went through my head when I read this, because I knew that's what we were doing. We were doing exactly what it was condemning in the Bible. But we thought, you know, we were manipulated and unduly influenced to believe this was a holy thing. And the importance of that to somebody who left this cult is significant because it you know, the way that they painted this picture was completely wrong. They painted it as though William Branham came as this quote-unquote messenger for the age, and he was creating a separate people. But the history doesn't show this. That's not what happened. He, he separated because they basically booted him out, and he wanted a broader fellowship. He wanted all of this to be, you know, basically under his manipulation and control, and like the kids playing in the playground, if you're not going to play our way, I'm just going to go play by myself. <laughs> mm -hmm. that, that's a pretty good description. Yeah, you know, he, he, there's like the scripture in the Bible, let the tares and the wheat grow together till the end, right? Like, is you know, but uh, William Branham more or less jumped the gun on all of that, right? And he more or less set up, this is the doomsday. Let's let's separate the tares and the wheat. But I mean, this is what, 75 years ago, this stuff at this point. Clearly, it wasn't the end. I mean, it, it's 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 utterly manifest that William Branham was totally mistaken at this point about yeah. just the, the very core thesis of, of everything that he presented. Um, the end of the world should have happened, honestly, about 50 years ago. Um, if, if William Branham really was who he said he was and if the things he said was true. Uh, but jumping ahead, uh, maybe before we do dive into the splits, um, the some resources just to point the people to if they want to look at some of this stuff. One of the things I would recommend to cover some of these things, New Charismatics by Michael Moriarty, just a few resources. The Healer Prophet by Doug Weaver has got quite a good bit. He He's probably... Of all the people I've read, John, besides, uh, you know, people like us that actually left the message, I think he has the most the most accurate take on some of the stuff that happened when this thing all blew up. Um, another book that covers kind of how the whole charismatic movement uh, came out of the splits is The Healer Prophet by Doug Weaver, or rather, uh, David Edwin Harrell. Also, look in the Herald of Faith magazines. That's yes. a lot of the ways that you can... <laughs> Joseph Matson Bose actually airs. He don't mind writing the dirty laundry in the magazine, right? No, so can, he don't. <laughs> you can just read it. And and last of all, if you look on Google, the almost all the elders of Sharon Orphanage, you can actually find the recorded testimonies on YouTube, and they'll they'll spell a lot of this stuff out for you too. Exactly how what happened. Um, 
And so, so after that, let me just dive in. So, you know, if you recall back on episode number 16, when we did the birth of the Latter Rain Revival, the Latter Rain had started up in Sharon Orphanage in 1948. Um, and the orphanage had been created by the Foursquare Churches. Angelus Temple was the headquarters. And the Foursquare Superintendent was actually there, Herrick Holt, when the whole thing started out. And I think he survived. He stayed with it to the end, I believe. I believe he yeah. died still, member of Sharon Orphanage. Yeah, and I totally missed that connection whenever I was writing the first book. I, I saw that Foursquare Church was involved, the heads of the Foursquare Church were involved with Sharon Orphanage. But see, at that time, I did not know <laughs> what the Foursquare Church was. I, I saw it out there as just this denomination. I didn't realize the significance of it until we started getting all of these other puzzle pieces and putting them together. And wait a minute, this is Amy Simple McPherson's group, and they're behind most of what we're seeing here. Yeah. And George Houghton, who they made the leader of the orphanage there, he had previously been in Pentecostal assemblies before he came over to the Foursquare guys, but he, he was running the orphanage there and more or less the leader of that movement. And they started praying and fasting, looking for and expecting God to replicate what they thought they had witnessed in William Branham's meeting. So the whole the whole Latter Rain Revival started off as a group of people wanting to emulate what they saw William Branham doing, right? Like this is, that really was the basis of the movement. What they saw William Branham doing, they wanted to do that themselves, right? And so William Branham is is central to to the Latter Rain movement. And um, and he's a hero to it, you know, he's a godfather to it in a lot of ways. And very early on, two key churches, we've mentioned this stuff before, joined that movement, the Chicago Church, the Philadelphia Church in Chicago, Joseph Matson Bose's church, and um, the Beth Bethesda Missionary Temple in Detroit, which was uh, Myrtle Beale's church. And those two churches ended up becoming really the most important early hubs of the Latter Rain message uh, up through the 1950s. And over time, their two churches really ended up totally eclipsing Sharon Orphanage in importance to the Latter Rain movement, and they became the largest, most influential churches in the movement during the 50s. And as that's going on, there's a series of splits and divisions happening in early Latter Rain, and I, I think we need to explain just a few of those, uh, especially the ones that directly relate to William Branham. So maybe we can jump into that next. Yeah, and it's also key to point out that as this thing was splitting, it was also growing, which is, yes. it's very complicated to understand that, right? Within um, the Assemblies of God, which, you know, quite frankly, I believe the Assemblies are the one who started the main split that just shattered the whole thing. But Indiana itself became a rogue state in the Assemblies under the leadership of Roy Weed. Roy Weed was in the message. He was a message minister. Uh, he was also Assemblies of God minister. And a key point to understand is when we say the word the message, today it refers to William Branham's cult of personality. Back then, and even as we found out this week, as late as 1965, the phrase suggested that it was the movement, the latter rain, which included the latter rain, included the voice of healing. It was a it was a message that encompassed all of these ministries, not just William Branham. We have Demas Shakarian and um, you know some other people on recording saying we support the message. And they weren't in the cult of personality. They were in this broader 
scope of people. Right, that broader latter rain umbrella group. Even Kenneth Hagin was prophesying about the message and promoting the message, right? It 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 was a much broader thing, you know, back at this point. Um, and with all those other groups, you know, apparently their terminology changed a lot over the years, whereas the message that we come from <laughs> held on to a lot more of that original terminology. Yeah. So one division I definitely want to point out to everybody um, that happened in latter rain occurred in 1951, or started in 1951 anyway, and it was actually pretty big, and it explains a lot of how it got so many splinter groups. So George Houghton was trying very hard to implement um, the fivefold ministry ideas at North Battleford. Um, and the fivefold ministry teachings, you know, as you go and you listen to all the testimonies and look at it all, that really was George Houghton's baby. You know, when latter rain was cooked up, George Houghton is the one who put fivefold ministry into the pot. That was his baby in, in all of those doctrines, uh, that latter rain cooked up. And as he's putting that into motion and trying to implement it, he actually starts telling the other churches that they need to submit to him as an apostle. Wow. And uh, looked to share an orphanage more or less as the leaders in the movement. And he would confront the other preachers directly, John. He would confront them, tell them to their face, you need to submit to my authority as an apostle. And he was very direct about doing that. And he and things became very authoritarian very quickly. Um, and in 1951, he did that to Myrtle Beale. And he confronted her, told her she needed to submit to North Battleford. Uh, but like quite a few other preachers that George Houghton did that to, uh, Myrtle Beale said, no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and so then she broke away from Sharon Orphanage, right? And, you know, and at, and at that same time, A.W. Rasmussen ends up going back to uh, the Chicago church with Bose, uh, the Independent Assemblies of God. And you see at this point, as, as George Houghton is attempting to enforce and implement these fivefold ministry teachings, that it actually... Um, backfires pretty badly and it creates a lot of competing factions at that point uh, where everyone will say no I'm the apostle and you need to listen to me no I'm the prophet and you need to listen to me and so the, really the first big division in latter rain it was not so much about doctrine but really it was more about who's going to be in charge yeah and um, Myrtle Beale and Joseph Matson Bose's church both emerge as uh, important and influential centers as you come through those divisions and splits yeah. And um, I, I've been in contact with historians from different splinters of this. And what's really interesting, Charles, is that each splinter group believes that they are the true splinter group. Yes. They believe that they have the message. They believe that they're, everybody else went off the rails and they stayed true to Christianity. Every single one of them. William yeah, Branham's definitely. group. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and, and get this out of my mouth because it's going to come out before this episode is over. Every time I see the name Myrtle Beale, she was called Ma Beale. I always think of DuckTales Ma Beagle. So I'm going to say it, get it out of my mouth. <laughs> now, now you realize if, if I fumble my words, Ma Beagle, I'm, I'm talking about Myrtle Beale. I'm, I'm the opposite. I think Myrtle Beach. <laughs> Myrtle Beach. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've been in contact with historians over the years that came from uh, Ma Beale's um, splinter group, and they believe that they have the true latter rain, that William Branham was 
just this sideshow for Laterain that Ma Beale and her inner circle was basically the true form of the Laterain movement, not realizing that William Branham is basically, oh yeah, you know he not not just and we had George Houghton. So yeah, exactly. We had the guy that she uh, said no to, right? <laughs> exactly. William Branham, was, you know, he was one of two catalysts, if you look at the historian's view of Laterain. But if you study the history behind how it grew, he was far more than just a catalyst. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. The, it was built off of seeking to emulate him. That was what started it out. And he is influencing it with teachings and doctrines, you know, all the way through. So... You know, at the same time that that power, stray is, power struggle is playing out between George Houghton, Sharon Orphanages, and other churches participating in, in the latter rain movement, pressure is also being applied by the Pentecostal denominations on latter rain, right? Simultaneously, Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada, Pentecostal Assemblies in general, Assemblies of God, they were the first denominations that started... Uh, fighting against the latter rain movement and in 1949 both of their denominations openly denounced um latter rain i mean we've got copies of the you know the the minutes from their convention meetings they openly denounced latter rain yeah. and more or less said we don't want it in our churches we reject this that and the other that they're preaching and as they do that that they start an effort to try and stamp it out of their churches and that conflict actually ends up causing a major schism just across all of all of Pentecostalism. And yeah. people from Sharon Orphanage, they actually start um, organizing and plotting to overthrow the den denominational churches. <laughs> and Sharon Orphanages, they actually start um, circulating cir papers with instructions for how to um, do a hostile takeover of the churches, you know, how to, you know— have votes, throw out the old leadership and get control of the churches. And, and as that unfolds, they're, they're trying to get control of ass, assets, you know, properties and things from them. And it, it gets really nasty, John. It really does. And the Lateran people were successful in taking over quite a few churches. Um, Mom Beale, Myrtle Beale, she took her church out and quite a few churches along with her out of Lateran. Sharon Orphanage did the same. Um, and a lot of churches exited and went with Joseph Metz and Bose in the Independent Assemblies of God uh, at that point. Um, and so this went on for several years, but it's not really till 1953 that Assemblies of God finally took the really radical steps to totally force and remove preachers that were yeah. friendly to latter rain from their churches. And this is the point where we can bring Jim Jones into the story, right? Exactly. Because Jim Jones was a latter rain preacher in Assemblies of God during that period, and he ended up getting caught up in that purge, and that's what pushes him out of Assemblies of God and sets him on a course working with William Branham. And I, I know we are going to do some full episodes where we deep dive all of this, but maybe you want to talk a little bit about that here, John. Yeah, in my research, you can actually find it if you go to uh, jonestown.sdsu.edu. Um, there's an article, The Full Gospel Origins of People's Temple, that kind of gives you a, a broad overview of this. But <clears throat> People's Temple was created literally due to the split that Assemblies of God was enforcing in their churches. Jones was a regular speaker at the Laurel Street Tabernacle, which was an Assemblies of God church, and they were part of the message. 
They were not part of the message as we think of the message today. They were part of the latter rain message, the you know, the message that encompassed all of this full gospel, faith healing, etc. They were part of this. They had divine healing services, and Jones was a um, you know, very limited fame, but at in the early stages he was growing fame for his divine healing. Um you know, I, I call it a stage act now, but they truly believed he was a divine healer. They believed that he had the quote-unquote gift, just like William Branham, the same discernment, the same power to heal, etc. It's pretty interesting. He started doing that immediately after he met William Branham. He didn't even know how to do it until exactly. he met William Branham. Exactly. So he's in this church, and, and remember, Indiana itself became a rogue state and supported William Branham through Roy H. Weed. Well, Weed is the one who came to dedicate the tabernacle as a full gospel tabernacle. So it was literally dedicated into the message, if you understand what is the message back then. And Weed held that purge off in Indiana from the late 40s. He was, a, he was the one who kept the Lateran preachers from being purged in Indiana up till 1953 when you know, central leadership cracked down so hard he couldn't resist them anymore. Right. So Jones was a part of this, and he was watching this, you know, this very, very rigid split in in Pentecostalism. And he is taking the William Branham side of the split. He and the rest of the church basically took the William Branham side of the split. Well, the Assemblies of God came in and overthrew all the leadership and basically planted somebody in the church who was going to try and transition that church away from the message. Well, Jones and several people who, well, a few people who were with him at that church form what was called, um, I believe it was Wings of Deliverance, and then that transitioned into People's Temple. And he joined the message, but he joined on the independent Assemblies of God side of the split. That's the side that went with William Branham. And he originally, the church there was originally called People's Temple Full Gospel. Right. Right. He advertised he was a full he was people's temple full gospel, which was not the first full gospel church he was member of, which I look forward to getting into when we when we deep dive some of this stuff as well, John. Right. So yeah. So I know that is that is super interesting stuff, John. I mean, it blew my mind when I learned when I really grasped how deeply Jim Jones had been connected to the message. Um our pastor had actually told us we he was in the message years and years ago. So we I had always known, like more or less, that he had been in the message yeah. for decades. I had known he was in the message, but I didn't realize how how he became a pretty close confidant and worker with William Branham for for a period of time. So it's it's a big deal when we escaped the cult in January of 2012. Um, we started going to you know, trying out different local churches. And one of the churches we tried out, actually, most of the churches we tried out had former members of the message sect. And one of them had some people who were involved with the local city government. And they informed me that there was a time in which my grandfather and several other key figures in the message fought very hard to keep a certain book out of the Jeffersonville local library. And that's The Raven, which is by far the most authoritative book on Jim Jones. It mentions William Branham, and it mentions Jones's involvement with Branham. And, um, 
it, I don't think when they wrote that book, I don't think they had the depth of research that we have now about it, but they knew enough to know that Jones was inspired by Branham and held, you know, basically the, um, launched William Branham launched Jim Jones's ministry into fame at the Cato Tabernacle. So the key figures in what became the message cult of personality fought to keep the message of latter rain book of history out of the local libraries. Yeah. So I think there's another important division that we should talk about too, um, as we're looking at these latter rain splits and the second one is important because, um, it's the split that will lead to the shepherding movement, and Ern Baxter is actually the one who instigated this split. Yeah, I think we need to we need to share just a little bit on this one. There's no way we can cover every split in the you know, but the ones that relate to William Branham and produce the central branches of Latter Rain, I think we we definitely got to mention. Um, and so, anyways, Ern Baxter, he, this started out. He went up to the Sharon Orphanage and he met with the leaders there, and he aired some issues he had with them. Um, and a man named James Watt was one of the original elders, there were seven elders there, that was leading at North Battleford from the start of the revival. And James Watt really was in love with Ladder Rain. Like, you can listen to his testimonies. He, that man was obsessed with, <laughs> with Ladder Rain till the day he died. Uh, but he, he had some reservations about the manifested Sons of God teachings. And Ern Baxter encouraged him and influenced him, actually, to break off from Sharon Orphanage um, over that. And as that happened, he left Sharon Orphanage. He went to Minnesota at first and, and pastored a church there. But as time goes on, Ern Baxter and him developed a stronger and stronger relationship. And he actually ends up introducing Jim Watt to um, Derek Prince. And Derek Prince was pastoring a church in Seattle at the time. And James Watt goes over to Derek Prince's church, uh, which was called Broadway Tabernacle in Seattle, and they started working together. And it was, I think it's worth pointing out, too, that Derek Prince was participating in William Branham's revivals at the time, you know, as that stuff was going on. And a large part of what Derek Prince preached and taught, he learned during those years. He learned from Jim Watt, and he learned during his time participating with William Branham, right? That's that is really when the core of his beliefs came together was when he started working with these latter rain figures um deeply influenced man by latter rain Derek prince was he just ended up in a different latter rain faction than william branham but that seattle church that Derek prince was pastoring um, it ended up turning into the assembly of the body of christ after he left uh, and they spread through uh, multiple states, multiple branches of their church, and they were even part of the shepherding movement for a while. You know, but as that whole thing was coming together, um, Ern Baxter is working very closely with James Watts, Derek Prince, and between the three of them, they formalized the teachings that would ultimately become the shepherding movement there in that Seattle church. Um, and uh, Ern Baxter, he was from Vancouver. He had a church in Vancouver, but the Seattle church seems to be the spot where they were pioneering this stuff and basically they built that whole church from the ground up based purely on um, Jim Watts take on the latter rain teachings and they produced a whole lot of uh, literature and study materials there that ended up being used in the early days of the shepherding movement and Derek Prince and Jim Watts were the author of, of most of that and now we we know quite a bit about that Seattle church too through testimony of people who went there 
Um, for example, we know that that Seattle church taught the fully racial version of Serpent Seed, at least up into the 1970s. Um, we don't have any evidence that Derek Prince himself taught it, but uh, other preachers at that church definitely was teaching it. And the, the Assembly of the Body of Christ, um, they're still in the news, John. Um, they're still around. They turned into a really horrendous cult. Um, and like just about six months ago, here's one news article. Uh, three of their pastors were arrested for raping children. Um, wow. July 2022. And, and this stuff, like you read these articles, there's all kinds of other things you can look at. This stuff was going on all the way back to the 70s, these cases were. So all the way back there in this stuff ha was going on from nearly the beginning of this stuff, right? And this stuff is just really sad, John. These are cults, right? And, you know, when we call these things cults, like we're not just saying it's small beans. I mean, we're talking child rapes and things like that. This is what these cults ended up producing. And, and really, it was all the way back very close to the beginning of the launch of these things. But anyways, of course, Derek Prince and Jim Watt, they had done moved on by the time that these things started. But it does interest me that these men have a pattern of starting groups that turn into horrendous cults. This isn't the only cult Derek Prince is going to start. You know, this is, I think, cult number two for Derek Prince. He's got at least one more cult after this that he's going to help build. Yeah, and there's one phrase that you mentioned that I think is significant that our listeners understand for those who aren't familiar. The fivefold ministry. Um, this doctrine, as you mentioned, was a very fundamental part of the Sharon Orphanage. But deeper than that, it became a very fundamental part um, of all of the various splinter groups that emerged from it. And you have to be careful and cautious how you handle this doctrine because it is based off of a passage from the Bible. However, the way in which they teach and implement this doctrine became the architecture for creating a destructive cult hierarchy. The doctrine is sim simply, it means that to them in the last days, God would send apostles, prophets, pastor, teachers, and evangelists. But the way in which they implemented it was a hierarchy. And as you said, certain key figures wanted to be at the top of this hierarchy, instructing the others. And so they were literally creating the cult pyramid where there is a men or specific person at the top, and they have like this reporting structure all the way down to the rank and file members. It's a, a religious pyramid scheme, basically. Yeah, I know we talked about that and the fivefold ministry stuff quite a bit when we did our manifested sons of god and our latter rain episodes and maybe we should do a full episode on the history of the fivefold ministry teaching yeah. at some point but at at its core um if you anywhere i'm going to say something that i think i think everybody probably knows if they haven't listened if not this would be a eye opener pretty well anywhere in christianity today that uses the term fivefold ministry is using the definition that was created by George Houghton in the Latter Rain movement. Right. Okay? There, everywhere that uses it, that term fivefold ministry, and I have not seen a single place, they're using the definition created by these Latter Rain people. Um, that definition did not exist before the Latter Rain for fivefold ministry. Um, there, there, the term fivefold ministry was used here and there before latter rain but they are the guys who took it and defined what it means in charismatic christianity today 
Um, they're the ones who modeled it. They're the ones who pioneered it and put it out as it is. And and one of the very key differences in what they did with it, with anything that went before, is they turned it into instead of viewing the fivefold, those five offices. I said it right there. Instead of viewing them as gifts, they view them as offices, right? Yeah. Which is a a dramatic departure from even what the Pentecostal churches they were part of believed. Pentecostal churches looked at them as gifts. They did not look at them as offices. And the the churches before them all viewed like the authority of apostle and the authority of prophet and so forth vested in the corporate church, whereas they took it and they vested these um, in singular individuals, right? Even the roles are significantly different, uh, and I'm trying to flush this, flesh this out so that people who are listening can kind of grasp how important this is. Even the roles are different. Whenever in the book of Timothy and you know different passages in the Bible, when it talks about the pastors, when it talks about the ministers, the word used is literally the same word that is used as a deacon. It's basically a servant. It's a shepherd. It's a person who isn't controlling, but is teaching people under their leadership to become leaders. In other words, we don't want a central figure of a small group who are reporting to him in this building. We want to spread this good news of the gospel to the world. We want each person to become this. We want servants to lead people and help them understand how to lead other people. That was how this was established. But this latter rain version flipped it upside down. We instead want a gatekeeper and the, the ministers become literally a gatekeeper and more than that, a taskmaster that is controlling the flock. Um, in other words, he is the walls. He is the, if you look at the shepherd example, they're building these massive walls of structure around the sheep. So the sheep can't look out beyond the walls. Yeah. What, what they, what they did and what, what they still do to this day. So, and this is what, this is what gives it its power. Um, they, they take the, you know, the verses there where it talks about that they, these fivefold ministry is for the perfecting or the completion of the saints or the church and they more or less completely usurp the role of the holy spirit you know in yeah. the church and they 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 more or less set them up i am god's gift to you <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you can only be perfect and complete by submission to me right and i'm saying that really plain but that is the entire gist of the document the of the, of the belief yeah. you cannot be perfected you cannot go in the rapture you're going to stick around and be cannon fodder unless you obey me because i'm here to get you ready for the rapture right and right. and that and that then gives them this complete power where they are now in utter control of the people mm -hmm. who believe that and that's very important to understand that as we move on to the shepherding movement because think about it charles even the name the shepherding movement what they created at the Sharon Orphanage, they wanted to take that power that they created and put it on steroids. And that's what happened as it transitions on to these other movements. Yeah. So the manifested son of God piece of that, I guess we can recap some of our manifested <laughs> son of God pieces, right? The manifested son of God aspect of all of this is what sets up this thing that 
we all got to get ready for the rapture, right? Yeah. Like, I'm sure if you're in probably NAR, our groups, John, that phrase, let's get ready for the rapture, right? How, did you ever hear that? That Absolutely. is, I, we've got to get a people ready for the rapture. We've got to, that is a latter rain concept. That did not exist before latter rain. And that also flows out of manifested sons of God. The whole idea that there's a certain people got to get to a certain state so that then they can finally go in the rapture. That is latter rain. I mean, all of this is latter rain. Like the whole, the whole concept that there's got to get this ministry, that's got to get this people ready. So then we can have the, you know, end of day scenario. That is latter rain. And, and that, that went far and wide, John. I mean, that went far and wide out of this stuff. Another phrase they use is we're living on borrowed time. In other words, we're the church is not ready to be raptured because we haven't got the church into the state of perfection, which mm-hmm. all all cults claim that they can bring their people into this, you know, carrot on a stick style perfect perfection where they you know, they give them something that can never be achieved. But <clears throat> they they teach that we're living on borrowed time because the church has not reached this. So we have to perfect ourselves so that Jesus will come instead of we're looking forward to the return of Jesus Christ. Yeah. I think if I keep going, I'm going to end up preaching a sermon. <laughs> <laughs> so kind of dialing it back to, yeah. uh, to earn Baxter and, uh, uh, and and this stuff. So, anyways, looking at this latter rain splinter group, I've I pointed this one out with with Derek Prince, with Jim Watts, with Ern Baxter, because um, Ern Baxter was very involved with these guys at that time, and this is happening at the same time as his relationship with William Branham was starting to t- deteriorate. That he 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 kind of diverges off on this path, and by 1955, Ern Baxter and William Branham have totally turned on each other, right? Um, Aaron Baxter stopped showing up at the revival meetings he scheduled to preach at with William Branham, and they end up on opposite sides of one of the latter rain splits. And Aaron Baxter, Jim Watt, Derek Prince, that little group that they've already started, um, you know, and there's more than one church in that little group, but the Seattle church is where they're formulating the key stuff. That ends up producing the shepherding movement when you get a few more years beyond that. And it's arguably, John, I think... It, the shepherding movement is arguably one of the main branches of the latter rain as well, because just like you know the main message group, the there's Sharon Orphanage elders, you know, yeah. in the you know in the direct line of succession through to the shepherding movement as well. So, and as they break up, you know, that's when William Branham starts spreading the rumor that Ern Baxter is a drunken womanizer, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Ern Baxter starts hitting back. Uh, and I I didn't get it off my shelf here. I should have, but. Um, Ern Baxter ends up, you know, saying that William Branham's miracles were hit and miss and that the percentage of people who was healed was embarrassingly low. That's a direct quote. Um, and so they just start throwing all kinds of mud at each other um, as, as time goes on there. And and that's really how this thing rolls, right? When they turn on each other, the mud flies, right? Yeah. For the NAR researchers that are listening, a good way to think of this is if you take the original message, the original thing that existed that William Branham was the leader of, it produced children, and two of those main children, the shepherding movement and the main Branham sect, they're brother and sister groups. The NAR becomes grandchildren of this, and it's not just that there are these two children. There are literally... I don't know how many have counted, Charles. There are 
probably hundreds at this point of different child groups that were emerging out of this thing that was at one time called the message. And it included latter rain and included the full gospel and included all of these other things as quote unquote, the message. Yeah. So with, with those tensions going on in the background with Ern Baxter, um, the next, the next really big thing I think we need to mention happens in 1953. So in 1953, the Assemblies of God actually breaks off their relationship with Voice of Healing. Uh, they cut them off financially, and they actually start boycotting the revivals in 1953. And it largely has to do with the latter rain influence that was still seeping into their churches through the Voice of Healing men like William Branham. And let me just read you a short quote here from Doug Weaver's book. Uh, this is on page 92 of this book. But uh, he says in this book, With the censuring of its most powerful evangelist in 1953, the assemblies demonstrated clear opposition. Cooperation between the churches and the revivalists became rare. Indeed, disciplinary sanctions were threatened by the denominations if churches supported some of the radical evangelists. The revivalists defended their ministers and labeled the Pentecostal denominations as backslidden. Gordon Lindsay and Donald Gee worked diligently to effect reconciliation between the warring factions, but the breach proved irreconcilable. Right? So when this happens in 1953, the money stops flowing, John. It's not flowing nearly as freely as it had been because prior to this, especially Assemblies of God and, and some of these others, they were the main sponsors for these revivals. And this is where Gordon Lindsay starts to have his conflict with William Branham. Um, Gordon Lindsay's trying to hold everything together. He's trying to keep Voice of Healing operating. Uh, but William Branham is one of these radical evangelists <laughs> that's being targeted <laughs> and uh, being threatened by the denominations with sanctions. Yeah. And Gordon Lindsay here... And the more moderate side of Voice of Healing evangelists, they start pressuring William Branham to distance himself from the latter reign. And the Voice of Healing Fellowship actually gives William Branham an ultimatum in December 1953. And you can actually read. William Branham's got personal accounts out on this. They give him a, um, an ultimatum um, that he needs to stop going around the latter reign groups. And you can actually read his account in Herald of Faith magazine. Um and this is the path that's going to end up creating the message cult, John. I think yeah. I've got the pictures of it here. Uh, yeah, here here is uh, from uh, Herald of Faith magazine. Here is the William Branham's own account of what happened to how he was told that he couldn't go to Joseph Matson-Bose's church anymore by the Voice of Healing man. And Joseph Matson-Bose actually takes up his defense and starts publishing articles. Basically, it ravaging ravaging and attacking <laughs> the voice of healing people for how dare you do this to william branham yeah how dare you you're <laughs> you, and he calls them flat out pretty well calls them dishonest and unchristian like it it starts turning nasty very very quick when that happens and basically what's going on there is william branham refuses to break it off with ladder rain and Voice of Healing, uh, you know this, John, maybe you want to speak to it a little bit, but Voice of Healing actually completely severs relationships with William Branham at the end of 1953, lasts for about three or four months. Um, as all of this drama unfolds, um, he's he's disinvited. He's disinvited to his face. Uh, yeah. from one, he shows up at one of these revivals to preach, and he is sat down, 
and actually um, barred from preaching at a revival he shows up to in December 53. And then they don't let him preach for several months, right? And these are the sanctions coming out of Assemblies of God and stuff that's doing this. It's funny to me, Charles, you know, the cult headquarters, they put such emphasis on the how they believe every word that the quote-unquote prophet said is of significance to the extent that they'll even publish these recordings that are only a few minutes and they'll they'll give it these strange you know index keywords that have like xx or some some weird index title but this is a this is a statement not a sermon by William Branham and it may only be a few paragraphs they stress the emphasis that everything that the quote unquote prophet said is important and we should preserve it you don't find these things published by no. cult headquarters there are we have identified so many things now even actual recordings that they don't publish and um this and, is and most of it it seems like has to do with William Branham's relationship with these other guys the stuff that's cut out Exactly. And if, if you think about the way in which it formed a cult of personality, I can argue that the cult of personality didn't fully exist until after his death, because I watch men like my grandfather who are controlling and limiting the amount of information to the extent we've just identified this week through your some of your research, Charles, that they're actually the blank spots in tape. They're cutting key figures out of the recordings so that you don't see the broader picture. All you see is William Branham and you think he's bringing the message and this recording is the message and you don't see that he's on the platform with, you know, many, many other men and they're all saying the same exact things he's saying, but they cut out all of this critical information. A lot of it, it's like when he says nice things about them, when he's supposed yeah. to hate them. Yeah. It's <laughs> right, really, like, really, really weird. Like he, uh, we found that he's holding revivals with Oral Roberts, and Oral Roberts was one of the bad guys, Charles, whenever yeah, I was he, in the What message. was he doing holding revival with the angel from Sodom? I mean, like. Exactly. No wonder uh, they cut it out. <laughs> yeah. But so what's happening, and this is way broader than we can explain in this episode. It would It would take three or four episodes to fully grasp it. My research is also published on the Jonestown site uh, under an article, Enemy in the Camp, the Inside Story Behind Jim Jones' 1957 Prophecy of Death. You can kind of get a broad overview of what's going on, but <clears throat> as all of these men are limiting William Branham's involvement, Gordon Lindsay is shutting him down. Hundreds of ministers are saying, we will not let William Branham bring his heretical self-promotion into the churches. That's basically the essence of what's happening here. Well, what happens is Matson Bose goes up to bat for William Branham, and he, he sends introduction letters to William Branham saying, here's this guy, Jim Jones. He can help us. Here's his contact information. I'm going to give him your information. I'm going to tell Jim Jones how to bypass your screening people for incoming mail. I mean, it's a big deal. Jones is literally becoming a not just a message minister. He is becoming the right-hand man, one of just a handful, who yeah. are standing by William Branham as this whole thing is just imploding. 
right? Because as you come into those years, so F.F. Bosworth is, is elderly, and he's to the point he's about to pass away, so he's not able to preach so much anymore. William Branham's lost Ern Baxter to, to a split. William Branham needs to replace these figures to do his opening stuff at these revivals. Jim Jones becomes a figure that comes in and actually starts being the Ern Baxter replacement on his team for a little while. So we, we'll get into that stuff more. That'll be a good episode, John. And so, you know, for me, I think it's pretty obvious, you know, when you look through this split, kind of what's driving this one with Gordon Lindsay. Um, Gordon Lindsay and at least a small majority of the Voice of Healing guys, they're willing to yield to the denominations um, and step away from latter rain in order to preserve their relationships with assemblies of God and so forth. But William Branham doesn't want to give up latter rain movement, right? And this is this is really what is driving this, right? So they can they can choose the established groups, uh, which is larger, which has you know that's where the I say that's where the money is, that's where the biggest crowds are, that's where so they can choose that, or they can choose this emerging crazy. <laughs> groups on their way to creating all kinds of cults and William Branham chooses the crazy side of things that's on their way to creating all kinds of cults right um yeah so that that's happening and you know it takes a few months but by the summer of 1954 Gordon Lindsay and William Branham kind of end up at making a truce after that first dust up and William Branham does start working with Voice of Healing again a little bit, but Ern Baxter and these guys um, gradually are not, they start stop refusing touring with him. At the, you know, by, by 1955, Ern Baxter won't tour with William Branham anymore. Yeah. Um, so he's, he's, he's just going through this period of where it's just gradually getting worse. Relations are deteriorating. And it's really not until 1957 that it finally totally enters this point where there's a complete severing. Um, so, but it's between 54 and 57, you have this slow moving deterioration and, and, and what is at the root of it is Gordon Lindsay and the majority of Voice of Healing wants to go with the, the Assemblies of God, Pentecostal Assemblies and, and keep relations there and William Branham don't. And that yeah. is the, that's what drives this division. And it's, it's when this happens, John, this is when William Branham goes overseas and meets Paul Schaefer. Right. Yeah. This is when William Branham um, brings in Jim Jones. Right. This is when um, things start taking a dramatic turn uh, as William Branham is bringing these really disreputable people into his into his circle. Yeah. I think it's also important to point out, <clears throat> like every situation, it's far more complex than just a black or white. This is what happened and why. The finances behind this thing were significant, and the fracturing of all of these different splinter groups from it was taking, was impeding the ability to bring in the massive amounts of money that they once had before. Remember, when this thing started, everybody joined in, and they thought, this is this is it, this is the rapture, that we're all going to heaven, and you had all these even some mains to some extent some mainstream denominations of faith joining into this thing well then once they realize wait a minute this is just another cult this is the framework of how a cult starts all of these groups started backing away well with them backed away their money and at the core of this there was so much money coming in that the key figures gordon lindsay and some of the others 
they had to find ways in which to keep the revenue flowing. So they had to find ways to attract people. But not just that, they had to find ways not to dissuade people. So if they brought William Branham into the picture, well, this entire sect of Pentecostalism won't come to the show. So they have to tell William Branham, you have to either control your mouth or we're going to control the money. Now, in the message, this slowly developing split that started in 53 with Gordon Lindsay and Boise Healing, it is a central element of the message's mythology of its history. Right? Yes. I mean, this is this is when William Branham was supposed to get the revelation that the Bride of Christ needs to come out of the denominational systems and start preparing <laughs> for the rapture. I could start, come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins, right? Like this is when William Branham supposedly got all of these revelations, right? Yeah. Which he was supposed to have had all along, and this was supposed to have been his plan all along. <laughs> no, it was not, okay? Like, it's when all of these people start turning on him, right? Yeah. Um, He's literally saying, come out of their group. They're not taking my side. My, come be uh, in my group. Don't play in their sandbox. I want to play with you in my sandbox. <laughs> yeah. And and all of the people who lined up to oppose William Branham through those years, William Branham totally demonized them. The message yeah. totally demonizes these people for rejecting the messenger and the message. Um, and, and the people who heard William Branham and obeyed his message and separated from the denominations, right? They became the elite. They became the true bride of Christ, right? And everyone who sided with the denominations, we believed, were cannon fodder for the tribulation, right? So so this split that starts in 53 is critical to message thinking. Message, I'll use the word theology. Theology is evil. The message don't have theology, right? Right. Which, yeah, right. Of course it does, right? They just <laughs> don't, they don't like the word. But message thinking, this, this splits form the backbone of, of message thinking in a lot of ways. And, and contrary to what people say, William Branham actually invented this revelation to lead the denominations after the denominations turned on him, right? He wasn't leading his people out of the denominations. The denominations were pushing, <laughs> pushing them out because they were nuts. Yeah. I mean, that's the truth. Yeah. William Branham didn't lead people out. William Branham, the nuts were pushed out. Yeah. What's interesting, you know, again, the cult has controlled this information. They've cut this stuff out of the recordings. We've got some of the live recordings that aren't, are not cut. And um, <clears throat> you've got, you know, these, these men who are in this and they're calling this thing the message. Even in the late 60s, they're calling all of it the message it's not just william branham's cult of personality it's baptist one of the one of the shocking things for me was hearing dima shakarian who's on the platform with william branham and he's you know he's got Derek prince he's got kenneth hagan and they're talking about the message and after william branham speaks they talk about a person who was saved in, under billy graham's ministry and William Branham is there, you know, he's with Oral Roberts. He's, you know, Oral Roberts and Billy Graham were the bad guys, Charles. <laughs> I know. But he's but there the and and under this united presence, it's all the message. Billy Graham's, you know, part of the salvation of the message. Yeah. Something else. And you got to remember, as 1953 comes and, and the denominations start enforcing this purge, which again, it starts with assemblies of God. It grows. I mean, by the by the time you get to the 
late 50s, every single significant Pentecostal denomination has banned William Branham, right? It just yeah. starts here in 53 with, with Assemblies of God. Um, and this has happened. There has been multiple investigations by multiple of these denominations into William Branham at this point, right? And there have already been, at this point, significant failures of some of his Thus saith the Lord prophecies, which all kinds of people know about. I mean, King George died, right? Okay. Do you think that the same people didn't notice that? <laughs> right. They had to have um, noticed. Okay. <laughs> there are people who have, you know, common sense that are not under William Branham's, you know, whatever. Yeah. And that's one that's part of our loaded language, Charles. I think it's we've mentioned thus saith the Lord and we use it as a verb when we say it. I think to the listeners who don't understand why we're using this as a verb, thus saith the Lord literally means that I am about to speak, but it's not God's my voice, behalf. it's not my mind speaking. God is channeling through me as God's prophet to you. So this is what I'm about to say is God's word speaking. And yet they failed. Yeah, yeah. William Brown, when he would say that this is equal authority to the Bible, this is the word of God being spoken, right? It's it's supposed to be the voice of God. Yeah. From you know, and that's why voice of God recorded, right? <laughs> it's it's supposed to be the voice of God when this happens, right? You channel through his humble prophet. But no, it's failing, right? And remember nineteen fifty three, um, this is the, this is right the same frame that he's going to say, and when I get to India, you're going to hear hundreds of thousands being yeah. saved. Didn't happen, right? Like, these prophecies are failing, and like that one, they've no doubt fundraised a boatload of money off of this I'm going to India prophecy. Yeah. And you don't, you don't you think that these groups of people he was fundraising off of noticed that this stuff <laughs> fell through? You know what the funniest part of this is, Charles, and I hold this back a lot, but I'm gonna I'm gonna let this out right now because I I can't contain it. I know William Branham's family that took over this. My family knew the family. My family was very close to the family. We know them intimately. We know, and we have proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that they're cutting parts of the tapes out. Whenever something isn't right, whenever healing fails, just do a search for blank spot on tape. You'll find thousands of them. The family doesn't either doesn't know or doesn't care enough to understand the things that William Branham said, because there are large sections of these quote unquote, thus saith the Lord that they've missed when they cut the tapes. They literally are not studying the tapes enough to know what to cut out when they cut it out. And that just boggles my mind. <laughs> yeah, it, it's something else, right? You know, the, the way that the message looks at this is entirely the way that William Branham spun it to them, right? <laughs> like William Branham, you know, like never suggested these guys cut me off because I was associating with uh, these really radical preachers that was producing all kinds of child molestation and stuff. And he was. The preachers around him were child molesters, okay? We'll get into that in other episodes. That didn't have nothing to do with it, according to the message, right? Um, the fact that a bunch of people he's saying, thus saith the Lord is healed, is dying. Well, that didn't have nothing to do with it. The fact that he's given, thus saith the Lord, prophecies and fundraising off of it and the prophecies are failing. That didn't have nothing to do with it. It had to do with his divine revelation that everyone needs to separate from the denomination. What 
a load of hogwash, John. And I cannot believe that... I can't believe my grandparents fell for this junk. I mean, what in the world? And and I, I can't say a whole lot because I sat there going along with it for my entire life until just recently. Yeah. But it, it's very difficult. Let me let me just read one account again out of Alfred Pohl's book because this is a man who was the who was a leader in the denominations that did the investigation that put him out. He helped organize the meetings. This was yes. a big guy. This man was the missionary secretary of Pentecostal assemblies. Okay, this was the highest ranking person in their denomination to work with William Branham. And so he, here's just one thing. This is the stuff the people in the denominations that were working with William Branham experienced. Let me read this one. He says, Now several days later, this dear brother sat before me in our office, his heavy heart and his mind in turmoil. He had come nearly 200 miles to speak with me. But before he did, however, I already sensed what had probably happened. But in spite of this, his question still hit me hard. Brother Paul, he said, You were there beside my wife's bed the night that Brother Branham prayed for her and pronounced her healed. Yes, I replied. I was right there. He went on, Can you tell me why it is that my wife, who was healed just a few days ago, is now in the grave? My friends, I believe that was one of the hardest questions I was ever called upon to answer. My heart went out to this dear brother. I felt with him. But how could I answer? Should I tell him that his family's faith had failed? Yet his family was one highly regarded for their spirituality. Or on the other hand, should I tell him that perhaps Mr. Branham didn't have the gifts of healing and had deceived us all? To admit this would have reflected seriously upon the wisdom and integrity of our denominational leaders who had brought Mr. Branham to minister at our churches. Actually, I can't remember just what I told our dear brother, but I do know that I did some very serious thinking about all of this. This is what is happening in the minds of all kinds of these preachers after William Branham's revival meetings. Because this kind of thing was happening all over the place. And as time goes on, as you come up here into 1953, and as these preachers start taking actions to sanction him, they have just cause to do it. William Branham is lying to people. He is deceiving people. And people are dying. People are dying. I mean, what more cause do you need to sanction a man than he's than people are dying after he's telling them they're healed? He's telling them they're healed. They go off their medical treatment. They die. What, what more cause do you need than that? It really angers me, Charles. Um, people, have sh people who have left the cult have shared with me some of the statements made by the current gatekeepers that they call themselves pastors. And examples like this that you give, these men know this history. I mean, they've got one job to do is study the message, and that's what they preach is the message of William Branham. They've got one job. They know these things, but in response to things like this that Alfred Pohl said, they will say, well, William Branham never said, thus saith the Lord, that this person is healed. Number one, it doesn't explain the problem. You know, Alfred Pohl, he's he's not lying. You know, you can go back and you can search the newspapers and you can see that some of the people he's even talking about. But worse than that, these men know that there are things that William Branham spoke the words, thus saith the Lord, and did fail. They know this, but they deflect. They say, well, this example that you're giving me is false because we don't have a recording of him saying, thus saith the Lord. Yet they're not telling that they do have recordings of other things that 
the man said that was false. It's really problematic whenever there's that level of manipulation. And that's really, that's why it turned into a destructive cult. Yeah, something else. You know, the average person who was at those revivals thought they were seeing all kinds of miracles, right? Yeah. But the preachers and the leaders who had to deal with the fallout after William Branham left home, left left town, they knew the truth, John. They did. And we found it in all kinds of books. I mean, we've read, at this point, what, we're at episode 32, we've read dozens of accounts of this point, of, of times of this happening everywhere, on all of his tours, all over the place, right? And... The reality was that these leaders who were in these denominations making these decisions were having to deal with deal with explaining this to people. Uh, and, and you think about that, too. They, they're doing it um, in a way that it doesn't expose themselves, too, as being bad guys, right? Because they're the ones who brought William Branham around, right? And so somehow they... It's almost done in kind of an under-the-rug kind of a manner, right? They're banning William Branham. They're banning this radical stuff, but they're not flat-out telling the people why, right? Um, they go to, well, he's teaching aberrant doctrine. Um, but really, I think it has a lot to do with all of these deaths as well, honestly, as I read accounts like that. And so, anyways, I, I think that, honestly, when you step back and look at the facts, the mythology and the message around this coming out of the denominations is nothing but a, a big made-up story. It is not yeah. true. I mean, the, the manner and the reasons that William Branham separated from the denominations has absolutely nothing to do with him having some divine special revelation. No. He wasn't even preaching that stuff then, really. It really had more than anything to do with his refusal to separate from these latter rain people and all of these people dying. Mm -hmm. I've mentioned it before, and I'll mention again. The Bible says examine. You can tell what kind of tree it is by examining the fruit that it bears. And, I mean, look at the fruits that we have explained in this episode. You've got Jim Jones, who literally killed over 900 people in Jonestown, Guyana, convinced them all to drink cyanide-laced Kool-Aid. You've got the shepherding movement. Their framework is basically they took the fivefold ministry's hierarchy of control and they said, we're going to elect these shepherds. And these shepherds, which are, by the way, us, are going to have control over the lay shepherds, which are the pastors of the churches, who are going to have control over you. So they created this cult hierarchy and then it turned destructive and like you've shown, some of the splinter groups from that even turned even more destructive. So you've got these spider webs of branches that came off of what William Branham created that became just as destructive, sometimes more destructive than what William Branham himself even was. And if you examine every one of these groups that splintered, you find very few that actually reformed and turned the right path. Everyone that we see that branched off of this, the majority of them, turned the wrong way and became even worse. Yeah, it, it's something else. It's really, it's also sad, John. You look back, it's just also sad. And, you know, the truth of this stuff still is somewhat like a knife in the heart to me, you know, as, yeah. as I look at this. And, you know, it, 
as we look, as we say this, you know, it's not like everything Derek Prince did was bad. It's really not like everything William Branham did was bad or Ern Baxter. It's not that, that like these guys, a hundred percent of what they did is bad, but there's enough poison in there that it produced all of these cults. There, there's something in there that has a tendency to produce these crazy cults and something is off in there. And, and, uh, I, I think, through our latter rain episodes, we diagnosed a bit of what those root causes are. Um, but anyway, there's one last split, and I'll just do this one real quick that I think I need to mention uh, before we wrap up this episode. Um, and, you know, if our people want more of it, they can put a comment. Maybe we can do something deeper on it at some point. But George Houghton, the initial leader of the latter rain revival, he ended up having a falling out with the other leaders at Sharon Orphanage um, as you come through the mid-1950s. And George Houghton actually ended up excommunicated from North Battleford, from Sharon Orphanage. And so remember, this man, George Houghton, a lifelong British Israelite, a lifelong preacher of the racial version of Serpent Seed, he ends up at that point being the former leader of Sharon Orphanage, leaves and he starts working with Joseph Matson Bose at that point with the Independent Assemblies of God. And before it's over with, he ends up um, really in connection with the message for the rest of his life. Um, yeah. And as we've pointed out several times before, I think he was most closely connected to Perry Green and his groups. Uh, that's where he, I think he fellowshiped the most. And he preached, uh, what, message youth camp meetings. And and he was doing that all the way through the 70s, the 80s, and then he died about 1995. And so I say this because I really think it's very safe to conclude the message itself is, the message of William Branham is, also one of the main branches of the latter rain movement right we're Absolutely. right there with the shepherding movement we're right there with with the sharon orphanage group we're right there with the mom beal we're right there with the right with all of them we are one of the main branches and we have the message they don't i'm sure they don't want to claim it but they have as much claim to being the successors of latter rain as anybody else i mean they had the founding guy as a as a member so, anyways, I think that's kind of where we can end this episode. But latter rain caused all kinds of schisms all over Pentecostalism. Yeah. Um, and not a there's not a major group in Pentecostalism that wasn't touched by it. And we honestly didn't even scratch the surface of all the divisions that latter rain caused here. But I hope we've at least shed some light on the divisions related around the ministry of William Branham. Yeah. I think I'll conclude by saying it's a pattern that continues. You've got, you know, when this thing started, you had, it was called this interdenominational faith, which meant basically, I don't care if your doctrine is polar opposite than my doctrine, we can come together under this thing that's called the full gospel. Well, that doesn't always work, Charles, because sometimes the core doctrines are aggressively positioned against other core doctrines, and they turn into battles and fights. That's literally why this thing splintered in the first place. Well, then what happens is you've got William Branham who used these different stage personas, each tailoring to these various groups that splintered. Well, sometimes the statements William Branham made are in polar opposition to other statements that he made. Then you've got all of these splinter groups off of the message that are trying to say, as as William Branham's son quotes it, every word the prophet says is thus saith the Lord. You've got that kind of mentality. Well, what happens whenever the thus saith the Lord doesn't match the other thus saith the Lord? Well, then you've got one group that says, well, 
our understanding of it is right and yours is wrong because you listen to this other recording of William Branham. Then those groups splinter and new apostles are raised up. So this thing is ever evolving, ever splintering, ever destructive, ever worse than it ever could have been initially because it's so incoherent, if that makes any sense. It's in essence, it is so internally conflicting that it can never have a cohesion, a cohesive unit of message followers. You're going to have this type of message followers and this other type of message followers who are going to be battling each other forever. That's exactly what we see. Well, Charles, this was fun, and I'm so excited to get into the Jim Jones research. I know that it may be a few episodes out, but we're getting there, and I'm just dying to get into that because it's fascinating to me. But if you've enjoyed our show and you want more information, you can check us out on the web. You can find us at william-branham.org and christiangospelchurch.org. For an overview of the historical research of William Branham and the Healing Revivals, read Preacher Behind the White Hoods, a critical examination of William Branham and his message. Available on Amazon, Kindle, and Audible. Join us again next week. We've got a great episode coming.